Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santee. I um, hope that the episode goes differently than the, the pre-talk did. <laughs> but I don't have high hopes. We're going to be all over the place and that's fine. So I'm Heather. I've got a bunch of people today. Lisa Murphy is here. Hello. Thank Mike, you. Mike Huber. Hello. Sam Balch. Aloha. And Richard Cohen. Hello. And Liz Nolasco. <laughs> And that's really everybody. Um, so we're going to do a thing that probably is going to be fun, I hope. Um, I've been focused really a lot on um, theories for like early childhood theories and theorists, um, developmental theories and theorists for a while, partly because of the work I'm doing teaching. Um, I've got um, a class I'm doing right now that's like the capstone before they graduate and its focus is professionalism. And I, we've really just been having conversations about connecting theory to the real world. And even though they've been through several classes at this point um, that talk about the popular theorists, um, none of them, and it's a small class, but none of them feel like they know how to connect it in real life, which reminded me of um, this book, Theories of Practice by Carol Garhart Mooney. And that's where the quote comes from. It seems that we have not been successful at presenting child development as a usable tool for working with young children more effectively. So what I've asked everybody to do today in the book, Carol uh, gives us a bullet list of things that she has heard teachers saying um, that show, that demonstrate that there is a disconnect between what we know and what we do or how we talk. So we're going to, we're going to, um, talk about some of those. So here's what I'd like to do. And I didn't talk to you guys about this before I hit record um, for, for, so we'll read the situation or the, the phrase or whatever we're going to call it. Can we talk first about why we think that might be what the teacher thinks or where that's coming from, and then talk about how to connect it to, to what we know about children and ourselves. Is that okay? Well, in the email, you talked about uh, discussing why we think there might be some assumptions. Yeah. Um, and, and then get to how the theories might change some of those the assumptions. assumptions. Yeah. Okay. And, so and I did kind I, of say it already, but with different words. Different words. And, and I know Richard wanted to be first, but I, I did really come to the table with a general overarching comment that I, I almost graciously backed out <clears throat> of being a part of this one for no reason other than I think the assumption needs to be what is dealt with before you start linking it. Oh, And I, I really do believe that just applying, a, I, I wrote a note, that applying a theoretical Band-Aid isn't going to change somebody's or most people's minds because the assumption is coming out of a value which is guiding their practice, whether they realize it or not. Yeah. And so I think the theory connection is part two of facing the kinds of comments that you gave us to reflect on and, and calling attention to the assumption, I think has to come to come first. You know, sure. where, where did that come from before we just say, okay, well, here's well, why this is actually <laughs> happening. And then I also think that there's a part two that has to come first in that these theories <laughs> and these theorists are really just pointing out things that people who cared for children over the last 200,000 years already knew. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, I mean, I love the way Carol's book lays it out in a very kind of simple way of here's one person's perspective and it, it can be helpful for some people, but it also, um, you know, it's true that the theorists that we credit 
are just, you know, usually white men that, you know, said, hey, you know what, that thing that people have been doing for a few hundred or women have been doing for <laughs> 200,000 years, it actually makes sense, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> oh. you know, so we have to throw in for those doing the, that early childhood nerd uh, drinking game, we have to use the word patriarchy here. So, right, and, right. And pause right. so everyone can take a drink. Look, yeah. Right, right. Um, Okay, sorry. Um, I was going to do too much personal disclosure for a minute. Richard, do you have something you want to say? Since <laughs> you wanted to go first and now two people have gone before you? No, no, I never said I wanted to go first. Oh, you said, and I quote, we'll hit record yeah. and then Heather and I will talk and then the rest <laughs> of you can talk. Oh, that's called humor. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But okay. I will disagree with Lisa and Mike since, since okay. you've given me the floor. Uh, just on principle. Yeah. Um, no, no, no. I will just say I understand exactly what Lisa and Mike have said. And, and I agree with Lisa's concerns and, and Mike reminding us uh, that these theories are, are rooted in patriarchy. And so they need to be, you know, looked at with a, through that lens. Um, but I also think as a, as a uh, professor of community college, um, there is a tremendous disconnect between or there's a tremendous tendency to just focus on practices and not apply theories. And um, I think that um, it can be really helpful to bring someone out of that surface way of interacting with young children on the sort of practice level to begin training their minds to, uh, you know, I think Lisa, one way to get beyond those assumptions is to, is to at least with a mentor or a facilitator, um, um, to, to try to apply the theories to the behaviors you're seeing um, as a way of getting past the assumptions. I also think that we need to hold the person accountable for elaborating on what they mean by some of those things too. That's right. And, 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 and that, that's where, that's where really where I'm coming from. Like all my notes that I took are like, you know, what, what do you mean by handful and sneaky <laughs> and, defined? you know, like paint me a picture, like, cause then I'm ready to give you that theoretical nugget. Right. But, right. but first let me, paint me a picture of what you actually mean by the language that you're using to describe the behavior that I'm not saying you're not observing that behavior, but, but walk me through why you're seeing it that way. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad you brought that up, Lisa, because I think in the same way that we respond to children with curiosity rather than judgment, we also need to respond to our coworkers that way. And when we hear them say these things, like he's so sneaky, it can be easy for us to pretend that we are these moral learned people who, well, we don't talk about children that way, so I don't have to worry about it. But in reality, if we're going to bring everyone into a profession that honors children and reflects on their practice, we have to be ready to have these conversations in ways that are not making people feel bad. Exactly. You know, that is getting to the heart of why is it that you're saying that? What is it you mean by that? How can I assist you using the theories of a bunch of dead white men to help you kind of understand where the child's coming from and then reframe what it is you're thinking. Because the majority of people aren't going back to school. You know, the majority of people maybe didn't even go to school in the first place. So we have to now take what we can in the classroom setting. And for those of you that are like, that sounds too hard and I don't want to do it. I am there with you. I am very non-confrontational. <laughs> We're going to learn together. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll piggyback on that. You know, for me, the reason I bring up that idea that, well, patriarchy, because besides the drinking game, is that um, <laughs> my job, I coach teachers in a fairly large center. So I see some of the best teachers who learned this by caring for people in their family, Mm -hmm. caring in general or just really being attuned to what the, they're seeing in children and not knowing the theory mm. and then other people who went to school got a degree and learned the theory first but actually practice it um so i want to honor both trajectories right. and then also i see people who even if they know the theory think but in the classroom i've got to get them ready for kindergarten mm -hmm. or 
you know, yes. like they just sort of like that was something I read in college, and now yeah. I now I'm in the classroom, so I can. I like this. Hence the phrase so that I'll sounds good that in theory. <laughs> it doesn't really work yeah. in our real yeah. world yeah. classroom. Yeah. yeah. So okay, Liz, you're gonna have to really wave your arms around if you, you want to get in on this. Elbow one. your <laughs> So sometimes um, I get like three quarters of a thought, and then someone has else was a really good one. But if I if I can jump in, since I'm yes, getting yes, for a moment, I think so much of this, the like the way Mike, you were talking about two paths to really high quality practice, right? Connecting theory and practice. I think there's something prior to that that really good educators need, which is generally a positive assumption of humans. Mm -hmm. I think if you don't start with the idea that people are trying their best, people are generally good, people generally don't want to do harm to others, you're not going to be able to make those connections, you're not going to be able to apply these theories that children are learning how to interact with others, largely based on how they are being treated, without these judgments. I mean, all of the descriptors that were used in the examples from the book were just so heavy and seemed to come from a lot of life experience of just being treated poorly and assuming that others are doing it intentionally. This mm -hmm. kind of persecution a little bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think we need to start there with those assumptions before we can even look at the children and the theories. Sure. All the more reason to be like, so what do you mean by that? <laughs> right, absolutely. Yeah. A picture of what you mean. Give me yeah. some information, right? The verbiage, the definitions, and you guys know that about me. I'm just such a stickler for the, the verbiage. Yep. All right, are you ready to jump into one? Sure. Do okay. it. So this is the first one. This is about a two-year-old. The teacher has said, she's a bully. So, so. What do you mean by that? Right, right. Well, that can't be the answer to everything. <laughs> but if, um, I think it's it the first be. question yes. to everything. Yeah. Tell me what I you mean by that. The answers could be different, but um, what they mean by that. I, I hear this I one a lot. For a moment with with just ahead, a, a moment of context. And then, uh, then I, then, but anyway, um, so I was the, uh, I uh, edited this textbook for the Council for Professional Recognition, The Essentials of Child Development. And uh, we were ready to send it to press. And then my mom got sick and I left. And after that, they revised it again. And when it finally came out, there was a whole chapter on bullying. Mm -hmm. And um, this, this B word has to me seemed to enter our field in fairly recent years. Mm -hmm. um, and I have, I really, really struggle with it because I don't, and maybe I'm just teeing up our conversation here, but I don't see young children's behaviors or rarely see young children's behaviors as intentionally bullying another child. And I have great resistance to this trend in our field yeah. to apply the, the human phenomenon of bullying to early childhood education. I agree 100%. And, and a nod to Dan, because he was right there with us with yes. that same sentiment. Yes. Yep. Yeah, I think a lot of times right now, like you said, Richard, there's a lot of anytime a child does something that a teacher or a parent, I find doesn't especially like. with parents, doesn't like with regards to another child that is bullying, but bullying is a very specific phenomenon that implies an imbalance in power over a continued period of time. The majority of two-year-olds, it's two-year-olds in this example, right? That we're being Yes, given. this is a two-year-old being a bully. A two-year-old isn't doing that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so why do, you, why do you think you can say with confidence that a two-year-old is not doing bullying as you just defined bullying? because she's read the research. <laughs> and, okay, so I would say like, if like if you are like, one of you is the person that said, he's such a bully, none of you said that. But if we were having that conversation, then my first reaction would be, I don't think that Timothy really has the forethought and the capacity to continue to want to put Mary in a position where she feels bad constantly. I don't think that's what's going through his head because he's two years old. What's going through his head is figuring out what he wants with this very interesting sort of goo of metamorphosis happening where he knows how to express things in his brain, 
but not in the same way as the adults around him. And now he's trying to figure out how to get that out. And at the moment, the thing that's working is taking it out of Mary's hand. And Mary, because she's also in that same goo of transformation of how to express herself, is yelling because she doesn't like it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, say, so, so simplistically, he did make her cry. He did. <laughs> but digging it deeper, there's a lot more going on. He's not enjoying the pain she's in. Yeah. He's thinking yeah. about the things he wants. He's two years old. Mm-hmm. His life revolves around him. Mm-hmm. Right. And so to apply kind of an important theoretical world word to what Sam was just saying, and I love that word goo. Um, <laughs> it is goo in there, awesome. you know. It it's <laughs> really describes my mind today. Um, <laughs> egocentrism. Right, I'm. I'm not sure a person can bully another person if they're that, um, in a wonderfully developmentally appropriate way, uh, fully self-focused. It's not about the other child. Mm-hmm. But then, what if I say to you? So you said I'm the one who said he's a bully. You've said he's egocentric. He doesn't have that capability. And what if I say to you then? Yeah, I know he's not egocentric because yesterday somebody was crying and he brought her their blanket. So clearly he can think about other people. Well, I'd, I'd report you to our boss and have you fired. <laughs> so, no, but that's a good question. Because I think that's, that's, that comes question? up. I think so much I think, of it, oh, go Liz. Oh, thanks. So much of it is this development of theory of mind that needs to happen by realizing, oh, when I take that, she does cry and I get this thing, so it's all fine, but the neurons are connecting, right? I do this, she doesn't like it, she cries, I'm kind of starting to get her perspective. And it's easier when it's this neutral third party who is upset and, oh, I know what will make them better. They want the blanket, I can bring them the blanket. I've got this beginnings of theory of mind, but it's not complete yet. Right. And I would almost say that an adult who is always just knee-jerk reacting and intervening is perhaps um, inhibiting the creation of those connections for a child to start to see that my behavior does impact or, oh, shoot, oh, pause. But if that grown up just keeps appearing out of nowhere, then I'm not making those connections on my own. Mm-hmm. And I think what this brings up is that idea of regulation, right? That if a yeah. child feels regulated, so if they're watching another child take a blanket, mm-hmm. that child is regulated and can be can uh, be empathetic or whatever word we'd want to use for it. And if they're the one who's like, I really want that blanket, I need it. They're going to grab it because they feel dysregulated until they have the object that they see. And so they are unable to be, you know, whatever, uh, show empathy so much as more of that egocentrism. So both things exist in all people. Mm -hmm. Toddlers, you're going to see it a lot more. Amplified. Mm -hmm. Amplified. Mm-hmm. And without getting all judgy as a coach, I always wonder in my head, if who only there you? was someone around who could teach them <laughs> how to be, wait, do we know anybody who might be in that position in this room here? Um, sorry, yeah. but, yeah. but it, you know, brings it up like, you know, development, there's that idea and, and maybe teach is the wrong word for some people. Cause they feel like that means I impart the knowledge. I just tell mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. what to do. Um, but at the same time, that's kind of the role, right? And talking about all these theories is great because the role becomes more obvious what you should do, mm-hmm. not just tell the child what to do. Right. So I well, can see- We don't teach, <clears throat> we co-regulate. Yeah. Right? So we're, we're yeah, not, more it's or not less. a teaching moment where we're explaining something to a, to a toddler. We are just, um, in all the moments outside of the blanket grabbing moment, we're modeling and, and narrating co-regulation for ourselves and the other children. So we're, we're allowing that child to be in a, in a, in a goo um, of, uh, that they, that where they have lots of input to, to pull from. And on top as of they that, we're building in- their, their developmentally appropriate self-focus. Mm-hmm. And we're building in the social constructivism. So there's co-regulation, which is a critical, critical, critical start but we need to bring in the social context, bring in the other people to them once they're regulated and able to receive that. Mm-hmm. Right. So I can see this coming from 
um, you know, uh, the teacher who said this coming from a misunderstanding of what really just happened or not really having all that information about regulation and co-regulation and self-regulation. Um, but I could also see it coming from someone who had just gone to a conference over the weekend and went to a bullying workshop and thinks that she's applying or he's applying um, good new information to their work. And um, so I, I don't know that that slowing down and first first thinking what what does that mean? You know, what, what does it even mean that a two-year-old is a bully? Right. Yep. So then she's frustrated with these behaviors and she remembers another workshop from that conference and she gets them to start making newspaper hats. <laughs> yes. But, but oftentimes, yeah, but, you know, that's a joke, but also yeah. we are in a field where we, we are in a society where people don't want to slow down to reflect. They don't want to slow down to apply theory. Mm -hmm. we're in a drive-through <clears throat> society just the behavior happened like this so let's do this I learned that in the workshop let's go I gotta put food on my table <laughs> um and true that, and uh, I think ability that to, Richard... to slow down and reflect is not valued mm -hmm. in our field or in our greater society mm -hmm. and the slowing down and reflecting on our own experience and how that is influencing how we are responding to the behaviors that we see right. in the classroom and now I feel like I'm channeling Tamar so Tamar <laughs> Jacobson a nod to you I mean you know at some point we have to face our own stuff mm -hmm. and that's not always comfortable all right damn it I dealt with that already and oh, how dare God. this toddler bring up all this stuff that I thought I was ready I was fixed with <laughs> and and you know I'm I many of you know that I'm in that play therapy certification class right now and the idea of having supervision I, I really think there's room for us in early childhood to steal something from that concept I don't know what the language would be but you know to go get supervision like talk to the director or your mentor or somebody about instead of pushing down that feeling or that reaction let's go be willing to process it with somebody yeah. without feeling like there's shame in that right my yeah. center um because we also have um children's mental health, we do use a reflective supervision model where the main thing would be to ask the teacher, how did you feel? Richard mm -hmm. used the word frustrated. Okay, so that's an example that you were dysregulated and you wanted a quick fix. So did the two-year-old. The <laughs> two-year-old was dysregulated and trying to, you know, I mean, obviously it's more asking questions than me just saying that reflective supervision takes time, but getting the person to start to see, oh, the feelings I was having those are valid and the two-year-old also has them. And it, then it's much easier for them to step back in the moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it doesn't happen overnight for sure, but yeah, but I, mental health has great um, examples of reflective practice that we could use more of. <laughs> yeah, well, that, this, this regulation direction that this is going leads to the next bullet point that we wanted to make sure that we got from here, which is a teacher saying about a four-year-old, she has no self-control. Ooh, that was the one I said I wanted. Yeah, my my first my first thing would be like, okay, but I need to know like that's not enough. That's that's so broad. Right. Like, yeah, what do you mean by that? But yeah, but so I guess why why do we think? Because I hear it. Why do we think that that's right? And I think thing of, teachers say that could be useful when it's not really all that useful. Yeah. So I often think of things as foundational skills. They're sort of so in a, in a way it, it's I hadn't even thought about how I was using Lisa's house metaphor, but with parents I've been talking about, these are the foundational skills you want your children to have. We can talk about academic skills. Let's focus on foundational skills. Mm -hmm. um, but um, executive function is often the term used and then definitely in the therapeutic set settings, it's used more because it's usually children who aren't developing typically with executive function skills. So with executive function skills, basically we're talking about um, Working memory, so being able to picture things. So when you tell a child to, that's why you know can't tell a child three-step direction if they can't picture what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Wait, I'm supposed to take off my shoes, put on my boots, and then put on my coat. And so they walk, they maybe walk in the right direction, and now they've forgotten because they couldn't hold it in their head. And there's a lot more to that, but that idea. Then there's flexibility. So I'm walking over to take off my shoes, but um, a kid just ran and bumped into me. Now something totally different happened. Can I take that into account and still, okay, but I didn't get hurt. So I can still go over, take off my shoes, you know? So you need the flexibility. 
And then finally is that inhibitory control, which part of it is impulse control. Part of it is just that idea that there's a million things going on around us and the idea of focusing. There's a million different sounds and I'm listening to the teacher's voice, not the fan, not the thing. And in some ways, not having a fully developed inhibitory control is that thing that we love about childhood. Isn't it amazing that they can just take such great delight in that <clears throat> bird singing over there? Um, but also they can't hear you because they're, they're hearing that, you know? So part of that is that type of control. And part of it is that idea of like, I really want to go play with Play-Doh even though the class is heading outside. So I don't wanna go put on my shoes. So I'm just gonna go over and start playing with Play-Doh. And all of those things are developing and, and even we wouldn't expect any child to fully develop that. I mean, technically until 25, but, <laughs> but most of those skills are, you know, when we say eight years old as a sort of the early childhood age, part of that is because those skills are still being developed just in a practical sense until mm -hmm. the age of eight. Yeah. And so the idea of having no self-control be, yep. Yep. That's right. Zero <laughs> but, to three. Or has you could say, but which control are they showing and which aren't they? Maybe uh, that's what you yeah. should really look at because yeah. they do show some. And they also, running out of the room. <laughs> I would, I would also encourage the teacher to think about what is the environment. I, I'm actually, this is sort this is very on topic for something that's ha currently occurring in my classroom um, with four and five-year-olds. So it is this child has no self-control and won't focus. She won't focus. Mm -hmm. And what she's not focusing on is like a coloring sheet that this, <laughs> that the group is doing. Yeah. And I'm like, well, if, yeah, she's, yeah. she's clearly displayed that she has no interest in that. Yeah. And what are we doing? What are we getting out of forcing her to be in that situation? How flexible can I, as the adult in the situation be and say, you know what? I don't really think you're getting anything out of this. Was there something else you wanted to do? <laughs> and it's it's now becoming this very, because this is the pre-kindergarten year for us. It's becoming this very interesting issue of the teacher who works with her is now wanting to tell the family about other kindergarten options. And she has used the term Waldorf um, because she could, because the child could sit on an exercise ball. And my first reaction is, I don't think that's what Waldorf is. I'm not an expert, but I'm 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 a good ninety percent sure something has some wires have gotten yeah. crossed. And second, why is the reaction to this instance of she's not focusing during group time, in big air quotes? Why is the solution to that we have to push her into a completely different path than maybe her family or she is anticipating? And it's, it's, it's very muddy, very, mm -hmm. very curious things happening. And I wonder how much of it is we anticipate this level of efficiency mm -hmm. from four-year-olds because we anticipate this level of efficiency from ourselves in our society. And for those of you in the drinking game, welcome to the capitalist discussion, baby. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we want these things to be quick and fast and we want our kids to be good kids because good kids are going to be good workers. Yeah. So we need them to be good right now. We're now making as again, ups to Dan Hodgins, right? We're making this a moral issue when it's really a developmental one. And self-control is children. such a, uh, it's another buzzword, right? So we think this mm -hmm. is something we should be focusing on and we get a picture of what it looks like to us without going deeper into what those foundational skills, what really needs to happen before we can expect this. I bumped in a minute ago, but um, uh, didn't want to interrupt. Zero to three has a, a graphic that they share a lot. That's they, they surveyed parents, essentially families to see what age people thought children should be expected to have pretty consistent self-control and a lot of respondents said two and most of them said three or four wow. and um yep. and, and they were expecting like complete inhibitory control by those ages and um you know unless someone comes in and shows you differently or helps you see different information or perspectives of what's really going on in there of course you're just going to follow that sort of instinctive cultural way of thinking and that about must have children changed and so much because my kindergarten when I went to kindergarten 
most of our classroom was blocks and bikes. Yeah. yeah. There were chairs to sit down for snack. Yeah. <laughs> funny because my memories of kindergarten are a lot of coloring sheets. Really? Mine are um, cinnamon graham crackers and chocolate milk on Fridays. Richard, yeah. did you have something you wanted to say? Hell yeah. Yeah, well, going back to, to focus, um, when I'm working with, with a young or inexperienced um, early childhood professional and that F word comes up, um, and by the way, far be it for me to derail a conversation about capitalism because I'm right there, but um, <laughs> it but all comes the back. Moment, anyway, I'm derailing yeah. it. Yeah. Um, um, so part of what I work with people on a, of, of the many, many things is understanding what it means to externalize the locus of control, right? So in other words, rather than say, is for me, the teacher, is there something I'm doing here that's contributing to this child's behavior? We externalize the locus of patrol, control and we say that child has an inability to focus, right? Mm. So I often tell them, and again, the goal is to be proactive. So when that moment comes, long before that moment comes that they say this child lacks focus, we, I've already established some themes in my mentoring that I can now pull back or refer back to with them. And so at that point, we'll say, okay, well, remember, I've often said that um, mm. focus isn't even my goal, right? My learning isn't even my goal. And we're told it should be because we're supposed to get them ready for kindergarten. But my goal is engagement. And if that child is not engaged in that, I think in Sam's example, there was a, there was a coloring sheet, um, then it falls to me to think about what, what is the value of or, or lack of value of the coloring sheet that I supplied um, I'm the one who has the power to supply various materials and give time and facilitate in certain ways. It's not about their lack of focus. It's about all the many things I have in my control to increase their engagement mm. by, among other things, following their lead. And if they're not interested in that coloring sheet, it's not a reflection on their ability to focus. It's a reflection on the fact that I put something out like a coloring sheet that wasn't very engaging. Right. What are and, they? What do they focus on? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good yeah. Question. I think. I think interestingly, in this scenario, it was a, it was a child who's with that same teacher who has two older siblings who mentioned this sort of coloring by number sheet, and the teacher decided to follow that thread. Right. Which I think oh. would be another very interesting conversation of, so what about that thread piqued your interest when you know what you know about the other seven children that you also work with in that group? Because for me, that would not be anything I would follow. I'd be like, that cool. Sounds great. I'm glad you get to do those at home. Yeah. Awesome. And then, you know, would watch <laughs> them play and yeah. see what else comes yeah. up. But for her, and I think it kind of goes back to that almost, um, like with the conversation about labeling the child as a bully, finding that quick fix, finding that thing, like, look at me, I'm doing, I'm doing it. I'm following what they said because they said they liked coloring sheets mm -hmm. yeah. and I got that. Yeah. I, and I ignored, I ignored all the other comments, you know, I ignored <laughs> that they also like to go outside and yeah. I also ignored that they like to paint. Right. Yeah. right. But I liked but, and loaded on the thing that's more comfortable for yeah. me. Mm -hmm. Joey Shen. Oh, I would say that they were interested in coloring sheets. I would say, okay, well, I'll put some coloring sheets over here in the art yeah. area. And then yeah. we'd move on with our day. Yeah. I there wouldn't set everyone down and make them do coloring sheets. Yeah. Exactly. Right. All right. So Joey Shen, yeah, Joey Shen from Teaching with the Body and Mind, my co-host. She always says when someone says something about a kid not focusing, she says, oh, have you given them a shovel and a pile of dirt? There's <laughs> really? a lot of kids who will spend an That's hour awesome. doing that. Really? <laughs> That's a good one. That's, a, oh my that's goodness. actually a, a great response. Yeah. I think one of the other assumptions with this example and using the, or this, um, you know, she has no self-control and using Sam's example of the coloring page is that there's one child in the group who maybe shows more of what we think is self-control. And so we think, well, then, um, so we come in and say, you know, developmentally, maybe this isn't a thing for this, for this group. And they'll say, well, so-and-so does it you know, just fine. And they're the same age or whatever that answer might be in that assumption. I think a lot of times we use the phrase self-control and what we really mean is compliance. Yes, absolutely. Oh, 100%. Right. Yeah. And so to kind of bring it back to theory, my, my theory crush uh, is Eric Erickson. 
And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, I immediately go to autonomy versus shame and doubt at the toddlerhood age. And so again, going back to the coloring sheets, if I set the coloring sheet down and say, now you're, we're doing coloring sheets, then I have the power and the autonomy. If I put them over in my art area, then I've allowed that toddler to, um, to utilize their primary motivator or one of their primary motivators of autonomy, of feeling powerful when and if they're ready to do it, then the coloring sheet becomes meaningful to them because they had the power to choose it. So mm-hmm. there's a lack of understanding there of, of developmental theory in how we bring a coloring sheet into our space. Mm-hmm. If we're looking at shame and perpetuating the sense of shame and actively purposefully shaming the child, Mm-hmm. We are contributing to worst developmental outcomes and surely children who continue to not develop this focus because they've already got it in their mind at four and five years old that, oh, well, my teacher says I'm not good at sitting and doing the thing. So I guess I can't sit and do the mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Right. Every time I've been around somebody sitting and doing the thing has been an unpleasant experience for me mm-hmm. who didn't want to sit and do the thing. Yeah. Right. And as a reminder around the, the idea of egocentrism, it's never about doing the thing. It's about who I am and my very value and worth. It's not like I can't do the thing. It's that there's something unworthy about me right. as a whole. And then that gets applied to all, everything I do in my day. Okay, that's, a, that's an unusual weird pause for all six of us right. to just stop. <laughs> Actually, you threw me a curveball there. I want you to almost repeat what you've said because I thought you were going to say something else and then you threw me a curveball. Richard did? Yeah, because I was thinking, yeah, I'm exerting my worth. I can do the damn worksheet, but I don't want to. And and that's kind of where I thought you were going. Like, Oh, I I was responding to what Liz said about shame and that I'm not going to do the worksheet. I can't do the worksheet. So I'm not going to do it. And I was saying that the, the thinking of a two-year-old isn't necessarily, I can't do the worksheet. It's that there's something wholly wrong about me that's not worthy of fill in the blank, worksheet, climbing, yep. being hugged, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Got it. Thank you. Yep. Thank sorry. You. <laughs> oh, no, don't, don't be sorry. I was going down a path at 90 miles an hour and I was like, oh. <laughs> I agree with Heather. The silence freaked me out. It was really scary. (laughs) Someone fill it. God. Okay. We have another one. I thought we might have a host who can go to the next question. (laughs) I'm trying. I'm trying. Um, Silence on the show has literally never happened before. So it's an honor to be a part of it. (laughs) This is a moment. This is a moment. (laughs) Beautiful. Thank you. Um, Okay. So the other one that we, that um, we agreed, we wanted to make sure we hit, because there's a lot of them here. She thinks this is a three month old. She thinks that she wails all day. will carry her around. How dare she? And my first response was as you should be. Yeah. That's right, your job. And you know who I first thought of, and then I'm going to let you talk because I really only have one comment to this yeah. in um, Rusty Keeler's book from last year. He said, you know what? You're not doing extra work. That is the work. Yes. And that was my first Surprise. like barf reaction to that comment. So Sammy, go. That's yeah, I think yeah. the reason I wanted to talk about that one and what, what struck me so much is a, the idea of a three month old having the capacity to manipulate Mm-hmm. that's inc- i mean wow that's that's very sophisticated stuff and but the, it is very a common way of thinking absolutely. only in the america that yeah. is right a right i was saying in our, in our culture and you pick up any infant parenting book well a lot yeah, of infant parenting think, books and that's what they're taught anyway okay sorry yeah, Sam, we think ahead. of them as as incredible as infants can manipulate our yeah. behavior yeah um and instead we we don't think about the fact that for nine months that child was safe warm fed whenever they wanted to be and never had to express many needs or that weren't immediately filled Mm -hmm. so now we've taken them away from if they've only been away from that environment for three months (laughs) and we're saying how dare they want to be held yeah um no i i would hope that they would (laughs) wail if that's what they need i would hope they would express to me that they need that physical comfort right now because that's all they know (laughs) they just got here in the grand scheme of everything i'm stealing that i love it they just got here yeah got here (laughs) 
Well, and and not, I'm not just stealing that. I'm stealing the idea that because I've never really stopped to think about that. That every single one of your needs was met yeah. immediately for the you last were months. Completely yeah. safe for the entirety of your existence, pre-existence, however you want to define that. For nine months, everything yeah. you needed was tended to. You were now nothing other than loved. Mm-hmm. And now you are in a world and there is sound and the person who's caring for you is frustrated because it's really hard. And now I, and I want to five be- five more of you around. <laughs> all over. And there's all these bright colors and I just want to be held and feel okay. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I'm going to express that that is what I need in the only way I know how, because I am three months old. <laughs> And so we can say attachment theory for, for this one. And absolutely, 100%. I was just thinking about parental leave, right? Being the only um, yeah. uh, democratic nation that doesn't, or one of what, three that don't mm-hmm. have parental leave. Um, that's why children do better and there's less health out, you know, less health uh, problems later and, you know, better outcomes and things because those needs are met to a much higher degree than when someone is with a group, you know, at three months. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are things that intrinsically a parent can understand and pick up on. And when it's the one child or, you know, twins, triplets, whatever, the children in our home versus the five children in this room where I'm the person that works the six to noon shift. And then we've got a floater for two hours and then we've got the closer like that also gets, you then have four adults, right? In that right. room that are and, all trying to figure out how to care for this infant. And there are situations where people need group care, but the Absolutely. group care should look like we should learn from attachment theory and, mm-hmm. you know, et cetera. But I'm this was the only one I actually went off on a tangent on, in, not a tangent, but I wrote down all the names all the actual theorists, mm-hmm. like the other ones, I was like, okay, I, I know where we're going with this, but this one, I was like, you know, Gerber and Pickler and Bowlby and Ainsworth and Mahler. I'm like, okay, this, here we go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think it goes back to that reflective piece too, that I think Mike was talking about earlier, because I mean, on top of just our assumption being like diapers dry, just got fed, clearly they're fine. Mm-hmm. And then reflecting on exactly what Sam just said, right? Oh, this is all new. I mean, if they're three months old, presumably they haven't been in group care for too terribly long, even compared to the time they've been out in the whole world. And just having a moment to be able to think of what that infant's experience is and having the time, because God knows in all of these early learning centers, there isn't always time to actually stop and think about what you're doing or time to reflect with your director. But being able to take the time and consider how you're responding to them based on their expressed needs, not necessarily just what you can visibly mm-hmm. see, although arguably you're seeing them crying and should be responding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That infant care is hard. Yeah. So like, I think, a- I think infant care is hard. And like for people that get, re- I think a lot of people get really activated, as we mentioned earlier, that regulation might start to teeter off with infant care because it's, more unpredictable in a lot of ways because there isn't you know a verbal expression of needs there's mm-hmm. possibly you can you could be able to see it as there's more guesswork in caring for that child so I can't like again I can't judge somebody whose first reaction is this infant is manipulating me because it's I hard work mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't I'm gonna try and choose not to I'm gonna yeah. try and choose not to and say you've read all of these American-centric parenting books or parenting blogs about how your three-year-old is or your three-month-old is manipulating you into being carried or you've read that think piece about how you should be putting your child to bed by themselves starting at one week or whatever Mm -hmm. right or that other mom down the street tells you about her baby never cries she's such a good the the definition of the good baby yeah (laughs) so um i would add that um you know, not only, I agree, Sam, infant care is so intense um, and so hard. And to make it even more challenging, we're in a field, early childhood education. Uh, can you hear me or am I frozen? No, we, we hear, hear you. you. Okay. We hear you. We're all um, just wrapped. You know, right? Attention. You what? <laughs> we're, we're wrapped we're just in wrapped. attention. Just like 
What is he going to say? What is right. he going to say? Right. Oh, I'm used to that. Impart that's, your wisdom. That's my style choice for me. Um, <clears throat> um, yeah, so not only is it intense and hard, but we're in a field, early childhood education, that lumps um, all of our professionals together from those who work with six months olds to those who work with six-year-olds. Yeah. And they're yep. incredibly different, right? They're like, really, infants and toddlers are like apples to the oranges of preschoolers and pre-K kids. They're that different, yet they all get lumped together. They all get funded together. They all get professional development together. And the infant toddler teachers always get the short stick. They do. Professional development yeah. and funding. So you have people in there. And also the people who get put in the infant rooms are often the grandmas. Yep. Um, and so you've got this wholly um, underprepared segment of our professional society um, working with perhaps the most important um, group of children in our society. Um, and so that's just, that just sets them up for uh, tremendous, even more tremendous challenges than mm -hmm. they already had. Absolutely. And I, I thought you were, I, I bit my tongue about two minutes ago because I was like, am I going to say this? Do I really want to say what I want to say? And I want what you to I say it. Say, well, I have two things oh, I want wrapped. to say. Number one, I have already, I've always felt that the most, and I'm using air quotes, the most experienced, passionate, talented, trained, understanding people need to be in the infant room. I've always, I've always said that. My second thing that I was going to say to bring it back to topic a little bit is that, and I, I don't like how it's going to come out, but I'm going to say it anyway. Do you think to some degree that there's room to want to make sure that your infant people are more informed of the theory? Like, is there room to say, like, yeah. if we got a working knowledge of attachment, the rest is probably going to come, mm -hmm. or at least maybe we're going to, start a trajectory of it being as appropriate as possible. But if the infants aren't getting what they're needing, we are going to be backfilling for the rest of this child's time here in this particular mm -hmm. program. That's right. And as a, uh, this, this was just a subject of conversation um, with some early childhood instructors in the last week with, for me, um, where we were talking about uh, coursework. We were, you know, it was the curriculum committee where I'm working. And so we were talking about coursework and what kind of classes everybody needs to have and starting this new infant toddler certificate certificates program. And um, the, the conversation kind of came to the point where we agreed that um, most people don't go into early childhood, even if they're coming to school or going to the workshop and wanting to learn about the theory, they don't come in with an ambition to be an infant teacher. They come mm -hmm. in with an ambition to work with older children and they end up in programs that have the hiring need is in the infant room or the toddler room. So, so this needs to be part of everything, not just right. a special infant class over here. Right. And That's that master's degree comment. Here. We potted about that before, right? Yeah. I have a master's degree. To what change am I doing diapers. in the infant yeah. room, right? Yeah. I'm changing yeah. diapers. See, it's I can't so wait funny. Till they get older so I can finger paint with them. Right. You're like, yeah. Oh my God, you're missing the boat. <laughs> oh my, 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 my school just, we, for a number of reasons, um, just realized there is a room that we could be using, um, <laughs> that we, we rent from the church that we rent from. There is a room that has plumbing, which we were previously told that room didn't have plumbing. So we haven't been using it as any sort of care room because it doesn't meet regulations, but it turns out it has plumbing. So my first reaction was, let's open an infant room we have a huge need for that and I want to be in it I want to do that that sounds incredible can you imagine what we would be able not only to do for our community but also professionally as a school if we can take our philosophy and show yes infant care is absolutely part of this and when I tell you I was met with looks of horror mm. about the idea of not exaggerating like Wow. And I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry, but again, I'm going to go back to, we don't view infants as valuable in this capitalist lens. We view them as something to be just taken care of and moved on mm -hmm, and shuffled mm -hmm. through. Well, they can't really do anything productive. So what's really the point? Yeah. And, and that's what I say. My most experienced person in <laughs> right. there, right? When they're just babies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just such a, such a tragic view of how you could 
be interacting with the most interesting, in my opinion, the most interesting part of human life. The very you know, and I, I think there's something like some of the same shortcomings or whatever happen with um, a lot of uh, disabled children, especially I think neurodivergent uh, absolutely. children, absolutely. right? Because it's like, well, they don't, what are we going to do? We're just like caring for them. We'll just like whatever, mm -hmm. or, or um, we're an inclusion program. So the teachers are like, well, I, that kid there, I don't know what to do with. Can we get a para to just mm -hmm. do that? Someone who doesn't, you know, is like whatever, um, yeah. you know, yeah. 19 and, you know, hasn't studied any theory yet so that I can do my teaching, use my mm -hmm. master's degree for these kids. And we need just the opposite, same thing, right? That mm -hmm. we need the people who really get the theory and like, no, oh, connect with that child, um, love that child, mm -hmm. and then figure out, you know, I mean, how they are part of the classroom, not, yeah, yeah but just it's the same devaluing mm -hmm. of our society. Yeah. So clearly we needed a whole separate infant uh, episode because this has really moved away from the original bullet point into it's such a good conversation. <laughs> so I just have to write that on my list of things that I forget Please I said do. about and then Richard can text me later and remind me <laughs> that we said we'd do that. Um, okay, so do you uh, do you do you want to do another one? Or, it's been an hour. How no, long are are, no. Is it, has it been an hour? I couldn't tell because yes. I know we talked a long time. Okay, so it's, it's been done. about an hour. First, are you sick of us? I think I'm never sick question. of you. Um, but that okay, so if it's been an hour, I thought we got started a lot later than we did. Okay, so this is us winding up this conversation. Um, this is your last chance to make a pitch for getting to know theory a little I, I, better. My vote is for a follow-up episode, and we talk about a couple more of them, and then you get two two in the can. Agreed. In the yeah. um, my only pitch is I have not read this specific book by Carol, but mm -hmm. I've read some of her other books and she's, she's great. Like if, even if you are a person listening to this podcast, because for some reason you don't view yourself as a reader, yeah. totally understand that. I, pr she writes in a very conversational way. Yeah. yeah. And I use this like, book for the people who don't go to college, you know, that I, it's a great book. It's like here, you can get to know the theorists in a real simple way or simple is the wrong word. Yeah. Um, Cause it is. A lot of thought, but in a yeah. quick, quicker way or user friendly. User yeah, friendly. It's very user Thank friendly. you. I think that's a different book. That's Theories of Childhood. Oh, you're right. Yeah, this is Theories of Practice, and it doesn't you're right. go into I was thinking of Theories of Childhood theories. and Series yeah. of Attachment. Or of attachment. attachment. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. So th those two are great books, um, but that's not the one that we've got here. So I yeah, you're right. I'm getting. Funny. All of her work. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. You should read all her books. They're great. Yeah, read all her books. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I guess we've got a part two coming if you like this one. <laughs> all right. Bye, everybody. Bye bye. Uh, that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.